In the fall of 1981, I was shopping in Kings Plaza Mall with my family where my brother and I always went to Sam Goody on the second floor to check out all of the new albums. Danny was five years older than I was and I looked up to everything he did, especially music. Anything he told me about a band or a musician, I took as absolute law. If he told me Randy Rhodes was the fastest guitar player in the world, then it was definitely true. I didn't really have any interest in any other band but Kiss, so I would always sprint over to the K section of the records. I was slowly closing in on owning every Kiss album, but still was missing a few. Being only seven at the time, it was still hard to come up with enough money to buy an album. I couldn't wait to get to the mall because I'd been saving and finally had enough money to buy another Kiss record. As I was excitingly looking through the options, I came across something that definitely wasn't there last time. Back in the 80s, it was hard to find out when new records were being released. You either had to know someone who bought it, or you had to go to the record store to see for yourself. When I woke up that morning, I'd never dreamed a new Kiss album would be out. Sure enough, though, in my hands was an album with a picture of a hand knocking on a giant wooden door. It had the Kiss logo in the corner, but to my astonishment, there was no picture of the band on either the front or the back. This had me worried. What should I do? This was a major life-altering decision for a seven-year-old. Do I buy an album that I still needed, like Hotter Than Hell or Dynasty? Or do I buy this new unknown album called Music From The Elder? I couldn't even be 100% sure this was a real Kiss album. I'd been to record stores near my grandparents' house in Greenwich Village, and they had something called bootlegs. I remember going to a store called It's Only Rock and Roll. It was almost like its own Kiss store, and they had hundreds of bootlegs. So I wasn't even sure if this record I was holding was real or not. I bought a few of those bootlegs before, and I was extremely disappointed in the sound quality. What do I do? I ran over to my brother to ask for his advice. After all, I thought he knew everything there was to know about music, and he was the one who introduced me to Kiss in the first place. After explaining to him my dilemma about being afraid it wasn't a real Kiss album, we came up with a pretty good plan. Since my brother had his Sony Walkman, I would buy the cassette copy of The Elder. Then, as soon as we left the store, I would immediately test it in his Walkman. Even though I didn't really want the cassette because all of my other Kiss albums were on vinyl, I agreed with the plan. If it sounded like a bootleg, I would just return it and buy Dynasty instead. I made my purchase and opened the cassette outside of Sam Goody excitedly. To my joy, the first song, The Oath, kicked in, and it sounded fantastic. This was now the first cassette I'd bought or even ever owned. Back in the 80s, my two favorite possessions were my Sony Walkman and my small boombox radio. I went everywhere with one of them, and now I had a store-bought cassette to play in them. The Elder was much different than any other Kiss album I had, but it was still amazing in its own right. I think anything that had the Kiss name on it back then would have blown my mind. While still in the mall, I began reading the inside of the cassette cover and I saw something that put me into a state of shock. Under the band listing, it said, Paul Stanley guitar vocals, Gene Simmons bass vocals, Ace Frehley lead guitar vocals, and Eric Carr, drums, vocals. What? Who was this Eric Carr, and where was Peter Chris? I needed to know more immediately. But how? 
I ran to the newsstand that was located in the center of the mall to see if they had any magazines featuring Kiss. Of course, I didn't have any money to buy one, but I thought I could at least look through a few to see if I could find out any information on this mysterious drummer named Eric Carr. To my utter disappointment, there were no magazines with Kiss stories. In 1981, it wasn't very cool to like Kiss, so magazines didn't include much coverage on them. I strolled home, lagging behind my mother and brother. I needed to see what Eric Carr looked like. Did he look like Peter Chris? Did he look different? Did he even wear makeup? Listening to the Elder from then on was a totally different experience. I was constantly imagining what this Eric Carr looked like. What kind of drum set he had. Everything sounded super superb that he played on. From the pounding double bass in the Oath to the complex instrumental Escape from the Island. In a strange way, this mysteriousness got me even more into Kiss than I'd ever been before. One song in particular had a big impact on me. It was the last song on the album called I. The lyric was something that I would live by for many years to come. Actually, it's something that still follows me today. It went, I believe in me, and I believe in something more then you can understand. Yes, I believe in me. Over the years, I would always sing it to myself whenever someone told me to give up on my dreams. It was over a year before I finally saw what the mysterious new drummer looked like. It happened on another fateful day of going to the mall with my mom and my brother. It was the same routine. My mom went off shopping, even though I think she mostly just took us there for the day to get out of the house seeing as how she didn't really have any money to shop for herself. After breaking off from our mom, Dan and I sprinted to Sam Goody once again. Upon entering the store, Dan went left and I went right, straight for the K section. I definitely wasn't expecting anything special that day. I was just excited to look through all the albums. I had no money to even buy one to fill my collection. Sure enough, when I was looking through all of the Kiss albums, there was nothing different. After about 20 minutes or so, I met back up with Dan, who was looking at some Judas Priest records. He, like almost everyone else on the planet, didn't really like Kiss anymore. On the way out of the store, very nonchalantly, my brother asked, Hey, what's that? Where? I responded. He pointed to the side of the store where they had some new releases. That's when I saw it. The image that had been eluding me for over a year. I jetted, another term from back in the early 80s as fast as I could, over to the rack and grabbed the album. It was beautiful. It had a purple-blue glow with the four kiss faces on it. Paul, Gene, Ace, and who I was assuming was Eric. He looked awesome. I didn't really know what he was supposed to be, but I knew he looked super cool. The letters in the upper right-hand corner said, Creatures of the Night. I couldn't believe what I was holding. Not only was it a picture of Eric Carr, but it was a new Kiss album. But wait, I had no money to buy it, and neither did my brother. Oh no, I said. Panic mode set in. I had to find my mom to see if she had any money at all. I could not, would not leave the mall without that album. I went to the counter and said to the salesperson, please hold on to this. I'll be right back to buy it. He looked at me like I was crazy and said, Kid, there are a hundred of these on the shelf. Nobody is buying the new Kiss album. 
Trust me. I got so angry and I made him hold on to it anyway. My brother and I booked out of Sam Goody in search for my mother. Booked or book it was another slang term back in the 80s to run fast. Even my brother thought I was crazy. He had no choice but to follow me because I was going as fast as I could to find my mom before all of the Kiss albums were gone. We finally found my mom outside of her favorite woman's clothing store in the mall, Joyce Leslie. I explained to her all about the Kiss album, about seeing Eric Carr for the first time, and how I would die if I didn't have that album to bring home today. My mom, without hesitation, went into her bag and gave me $10. She knew how much it meant to me. That's just who my mom was. It was probably her last $10, money she was hoping to use to buy something for herself. Instead, she gave it to me for the new Kiss album. She would do anything for her sons. When I got home, I don't think I left my room for the next 20 hours straight. All I did was listen and stare at that cover. More specifically, at Eric Carr's face. The sound of Eric playing the drums on Creatures of the Night was the biggest, most thunderous sound I'd ever heard. After hearing that, I knew my small, now semi-broken drum kit was not going to cut it anymore. The drum set that I got for Christmas a few years earlier was in pretty bad shape at this point. It was falling apart and barely usable. I just had to get a new kit. My birthday wasn't too far off and I begged my mom for a new kit. I told her I wouldn't ask for anything for the next five birthdays and Christmases if I could just have a new drum set so I could practice and sound like Eric Carr. I have no idea how she did it, but sure enough, on my ninth birthday, I got a brand new drum set. I believe she somehow tortured or maybe even threatened my father to somehow give her money so she could buy the drums. There was nothing my mom hated more than having to ask my father for anything. But in this case... I think she swallowed her pride so she can make her son's birthday perfect. And perfect it was. When I woke up that morning, I went into one of our spare rooms to find a burgundy red five-piece shock drum set. In my house in Brooklyn, we had two empty rooms on the first floor that we called our spare rooms. When my dad lived with us, he semi-finished our gigantic attic and made it into two very large bedrooms, one for my mom and dad, and the other one for me and my brother. The two rooms on the first floor were our old bedrooms that were eventually supposed to be fixed up. Once my dad left, he never came back to do anything with those old rooms or even finish the new ones. So the whole time I lived in my house, we basically had two rooms we didn't use. I found a few good uses for them over the years, making the first one my new drum room. When I saw my new drum set, my heart was immediately filled with all the happiness in the world. My mom came through for me like she always did. I guess my father didn't want her to get all the credit, so he made sure he showed up that day with his brother, my Uncle Charles, to set up the drums. My Uncle Charles was a really good guitar player who also played drums. He always told us stories about how he used to jam with the band Twisted Sister when he was younger. I always thought of him as some kind of a celebrity because of this. I used to think, wow! Someone who actually made it in the music business. I guess that in my little kid brain, jamming with Twisted Sister meant you made it. <laughs> it didn't even bother me that my father was there to take credit for the drums. Nothing was going to spoil this day. The day that marked the moment 
I could begin my training to sound like Eric Carr. My uncle proceeded to set up the drums, and then he showed me how to tune them. Tune them, I asked. I had no idea drums even needed to be tuned. I thought that was only for guitars and stuff. As soon as they were ready and tuned, I sat behind the set and started to play the Kiss song, I Love It Loud, from Creatures of the Night. Well, at least I thought I was playing it. I have a feeling it was pretty bad. I quickly realized that this was nothing like the little kitty kit that I had when I was five. This was much harder to control and to maneuver. That was okay, because nothing was going to stop me now that I had my new drum set and my Creatures of the Night album to practice to. I would work day and night until I was as good as Eric Carr, and nothing would distract me or throw me off my course. One morning after lining up in the schoolyard, my friend John Wasson approached me, and in an excited voice he said, Dude, did you see the new Kiss album? I said, what new Kiss album? You mean Creatures? John grabbed me by the shoulders and replied, No, it's called Lick It Up, and they took their makeup off. My face went white. What did you just say? was my only response. Wasson replied, Dude, I got the album last night. They took their makeup off. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Not only was there a new Kiss album out with new music I'd never heard of, but they took their makeup off. Just then, our third grade teacher, Miss Vining, stood in front of the class with that same stern look she always gave us every morning, as if to say, that's enough, I'm here, and it's time to behave. I couldn't stop thinking about what Wasson had told me. What did Kiss look like without their makeup? Did they still have crazy superhero-type costumes? Did the music sound the same? I just knew I had to get to the mall immediately to see this new album. Plus, I had to scrape up enough money to buy it. I also had to get wrestling tickets for the new WWF event at the Garden later that month. Lucky for me, it was December, and Christmas was just around the corner. After spending the next eight miserable hours in school trying to think of how to tell my mom that I needed my Christmas gifts early so I can go buy the new Kiss album and get tickets for WWF, the bell finally rang. I jetted home as fast as I could and ran to the kitchen to see her. After a long, hard sales pitch, my mom said yes. I really have no idea how she did it all the time. We never had any money, but somehow every time I really wanted something, she found a way to get it for me. I called one of my best buddies, Rob Scally, to ask him if he wanted to come to the mall with me to buy the new Kiss album and if he wanted to go see wrestling with me later that month at Madison Square Garden. I'd been trying to sell this wrestling thing to all my friends at school ever since seeing it for the first time on TV. I'm not sure Scally was that into it, but he asked his mom if he could go, and she said yes. I met Scal, that's what I called him for short, on my corner, and we quickly booked it to the mall. Along the way, we talked about wrestling, and I also explained to him about the new Kiss album and the fact that they'd taken their makeup off. Now he was excited too, because at that point, nobody had ever seen the band without their makeup. Once we got to the mall, I had to make a decision. Do I grab the wrestling tickets as we walk in to assure better seats, or do I run straight for the Kiss album? It was close, but first, I had to see what Kiss looked like without their makeup. Scal and I bolted at top speed to Sam Goody's. Since Scally at that time was much skinnier and way faster than I was, he got there first. But because I was so familiar with the store, I beelined straight to the new release section. That's when I saw it. If it wasn't for the Kiss logo in the top left corner and for a picture of someone sticking out his tongue, I would never even known it was Kiss. 
The cover featured four regular-looking guys in street clothes standing in front of a plain white background. It was the exact opposite of the Creatures of the Night cover that had blown me away a year earlier. In fact, it was very disappointing. Scally finally made his way over to me, and the first thing he said was, That's Kiss? Of course, I bought the album anyway, but my excitement and being in awe of my idols faded a little bit at that moment. We left Sam Goody a little down, but quickly remembered that we still had to go buy our wrestling tickets. We once again ran top speed to the downstairs entrance where Ticketron was. I don't think as kids we really ever walked anywhere, especially when we were excited. We approached a ticket window and slapped down our money and said, give us the best tickets you have for WWF at the Garden for December 26th. The ticket agent took our money and printed our tickets. We looked at the numbers on the tickets but didn't know how to figure out where the seats were, so we asked him to show us. To our disappointment, our section was way up in the nosebleed seats again. Scally gave me a slap on the shoulder and said, See, we should have gotten the tickets before buying that Kiss album. I hate to say it, but after looking down at my plain white Kiss album with four ordinary-looking guys on it, maybe Scal was right. One day during sixth grade, O'Grady came up with an idea of being in the talent show at school. After talking over a few ideas... I suggested we dress as Kiss and play my all-time favorite song, Detroit Rock City. I really said it more as a joke because none of my friends played an instrument, but nobody was laughing. Everyone thought it was a great idea. We originally played with the idea of actually buying instruments and learning to play the song. That was quickly scrapped when we figured out how much all the guitars would cost. We then came up with the idea of lip-syncing to the song. At first, I was against it, because I could actually play. But I realized soon enough that the only way to perform as Kiss with my best friends and in front of the whole school was lip-syncing. We planned to dress up as Kiss in full makeup and costumes and just pretend to be playing our instruments. With only a few months to prepare, we had a lot of work to do. The first task was to choose which version of Detroit Rock City we would do. Knowing I was the biggest Kiss fan in town, my friends left the details to me. I chose the Alive 2 version. To me, that was not only the best version, but it also had the perfect intro for us to come out to. You wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest band in the world. Kiss! I was also in charge of choreography. The problem was, in 1986, we had no access to live footage of Kiss with full makeup to watch and study. Luckily, a few months earlier, Kiss Animalized Live Uncensored had come out on VHS. Of course, I owned the tape, and every day after school, we got together at my house to rehearse and study that video. The band consisted of Brian O'Grady as Paul Stanley, Jimmy Price as Ace Frehley, Bobby Howell as Gene Simmons, and of course, me, Joey Casada, as Peter Chris. Scally took on the role as quasi-manager and the one who watched us practice to make sure everything was perfect. He would also report in on our rival band that was dressing as Motley Crue in the same talent show. We practiced for about a month and then found out we actually had to audition to be part of the show. We weren't worried. We were ready and we were great. Our costumes were all set. Since I had been both Gene and Ace for Halloween a few years earlier, those costumes were easy. Even though I was 6 and 7 years old at the time, they would fit my friends because I was about the size of an 11-year-old back then. 
Brian's mom came up with a pretty cool-looking outfit for him to wear, and I wore one of my mom's old one-piece jumpsuits as Peter Chris. It was perfect, with the zipper going up the front that I could leave open just like Peter's outfit during Destroyer. My mom, who had done my makeup for the past Halloween costumes, was going to do all of our makeup. The audition was set for after school on March 10, 1986. The plan was to rush to my house after school and start getting ready. Around this time, my mom had just started a new job working at Boop's Video Store, two blocks from my house. The night before the audition, she found out that she had to go to work that day and wouldn't be able to apply our makeup for the audition. This is a disaster! How could four 11-year-olds possibly apply their own makeup? We had no idea what we were going to do, but we had no choice. After school, Jimmy O'Grady and I ran to my house to get ready. Bobby said his mom was going to apply his makeup. After an hour, we were finally ready. We looked terrible. The makeup was all smeared where black was running into white and our lips and half of our chins were covered in red lipstick. Then Bobby walked in. As bad as we looked, he looked even more ridiculous. To draw Gene Simmons' makeup design, his mom had put his hands on his face and then traced them. So he basically had two giant black handprints on his face. (laughs) This actually cheered us up. It was only the audition and we knew we would do great. On the way to school, we had to pass my mom's video store. She came out to give us a big good luck yell as we ran by which gave us a little extra bit of confidence that we needed. Once at the audition, we only got to play for a few seconds. It turned out that the audition was just a formality. They wanted to make sure everyone entering the talent show was serious and had something prepared. For the next few weeks, we rehearsed nonstop, day and night. Even though this was just a lip-sync performance, it was my first real performance in front of a live audience. It meant the world to me, and I wasn't going to mess it up. I had to make sure we were perfect, and we were. That was until Bobby, our Gene Simmons, wasn't allowed to perform with us anymore. My friends and I used to play this horrible prank game when we were kids, Ring and Run. Ours, though, was more of the Brooklyn version, which we called Kick and Run. Most people in Brooklyn at that time had screen doors in front of their regular wooden front doors. Screen doors were pretty flimsy and made out of a thin piece of metal. The way the game was played was we would pick a house with a good screen door. One member of the group would walk up to it, ring the bell, and then kick the screen door as hard as he could. In essence, he totally annihilated the screen door. Then we would all run as fast as we could. For some reason, we thought it was a lot of fun. But on the night when it was Bobby's turn, he picked a house a few doors down from where our friend Jimmy, our ace freely, lived. Again... Another disclaimer, kids, do not try this game. It is horrible. We were terrible kids. Anyway, back to the story. All went according to plan. Bobby went up, rang, kicked, and we all ran. We thought nothing of it until the next day when at rehearsal. Jimmy informed us that his neighbor saw Bobby do it, which naturally didn't sit well with Bobby's parents once informed about what their son had done. Not only was Bobby punished for kicking in the door but he was also not allowed to participate in the talent show. We were only a few days away from the performance and we had no Gene Simmons. Luckily, our friend James Myers stepped up and said he would do it. Finally, the day of the show arrived and I was super excited, but there was still a lot to do. 
Even though this was just a lip sync performance, it gave me my first look into what it took to put on a rock show. First things first, I had to pack up all of my drums. I'd never broken down my drum kit before and I had no idea where to even begin. I actually didn't even know it could be broken down. My brother and his friend Jimmy Whalen took apart the drums as best as they could and started to load them into my friend's parents' car. I didn't have cases or anything. Needless to say, the drums got pretty scratched on the way to the talent show, but that wasn't the biggest problem. Once we got there and unloaded, and while I was putting the drums back together, I realized I couldn't mount the toms to the bass drum. The arms seemed broken. Looking back, I believe my brother just lost one of the wing nuts and maybe a spring, but I was sure at the time that he had completely broken my drums. I didn't have time to be pissed or anything because we had to set up and start getting ready. Luckily, I wasn't really hitting the drums that night, so I just propped the toms on the bass drum, which caused even more scratches. While we were lining up our instruments, the point person for the talent show came over to ask, What are you guys doing? Why aren't you setting up on the stage like everyone else? I answered, We aren't going to use the stage to perform on. I set up my drums in front of the stage on the gym floor. Because the whole school would be watching from just the bleacher seats on either side of the gym floor, I decided to use the gigantic gym floor as our stage so we could be closer to the audience. Even then, I knew we had to stand out from everyone else. I didn't want to be lumped in with all of the other lame acts on the same stage. I wanted to be different. I initially came up with this idea from watching the aforementioned Kiss Animalize video. They opened that show with the same song we were doing, Detroit Rock City. They came out on a platform over the drums to start during the You Wanted the Best, You Got the Best speech. Then, drummer Eric Carr jumped down from the platform and the remaining members started the opening riffs while standing above the drummer. It was a very cool visual that I wanted to try to recreate using the stage as the platform above the drums. Once our gear was in place, we moved backstage to put the makeup on. This time, my mom was there to help. An hour later, we were ready and looked amazing. Everyone backstage was raving about how great our makeup and costumes were. I thought to myself, we can't be stopped. This talent show is ours. While waiting our turn, our rival band, Motley Crue, was about to start. The band consisted of a few of our classmates. They were performing the song, Smoking in the Boys' Room. They looked awful. Bad costumes, bad wigs. Once they started their performance, it was clear that they barely even knew the song. We were trying to be respectful, but 11 and 12-year-olds' idea of that is much different than adults. We were openly laughing from offstage, at least until the middle drum a cappella chorus section of the song started. The band began to raise their hands in the air and signal for the audience to clap along with them to the beat. It worked like a charm. The grammar school crowd obliged and began a huge audience participation clap that was roaring loud. Our laughter came to an abrupt halt. We were suddenly a little worried. Even though we were clearly more prepared and looked way better, this crowd participation part was a big hit and we were unsure if we could follow it or if we had anything to match it. Once the Motley Crue band finished, we took the stage. This was it. My first real performance. Well, sort of. Playing the drums in front of a live audience. Before we even started the song, we got a pretty good reaction because of how good we looked. But I knew it wasn't enough. We took our places at the edge of the stage above my drum set, which sat waiting below. We raised our hands high in unison and heard, You wanted the best? You got the best. 
the hottest band in the world, KISS. My jump down from the stage was modeled on Eric Carr's antics in the Animalize video, and I took my place behind the drum set. The chugging riff of Detroit Rock City had started, and the show had begun. We were perfect. Everything we rehearsed was going according to plan, and we were completely in sync. Even our new addition, James, was great on bass. Using the gym floor was working out well, too, keeping us much closer to the crowd than all of the other acts, which I think we used to our advantage. The only problem was that the crowd wasn't really doing anything. I think they were enjoying our performance, but because we didn't have a big crowd participation part, we didn't get the reaction that Motley Crue had received. That was until the bridge. Our Paul Stanley, Brian O'Grady, took control. He went completely off script and away from everything we had rehearsed. Once he was free from the mic, the bridge had no vocals, of course, he proceeded to go over to one of the most hated and feared teachers in all of the school, our sixth grade math teacher, Mrs. Cook. Mrs. Cook had one lazy eye and was notorious for yelling and pointing at someone in class while simultaneously looking at another because of her lazy eye. This always confused not only the person she was really targeting, but also the person whom her lazy eye was now focused on. This resulted in both parties getting into even more trouble. OG proceeded to approach the evil Mrs. Cook, and once within striking distance, he started sticking out his tongue like Gene Simmons, even though he was playing Paul Stanley. Mrs. Cook was appalled and clearly angry, and so was I. Being a diehard Kiss fan, I knew that Paul Stanley would never stick out his tongue like Gene. It was blasphemy. I wanted an authentic Kiss performance, and this wasn't it. I was already preparing my lecture in my head when all of a sudden, the audience completely erupted with laughter and cheering. They all knew Mrs. Cook and her reputation as one of the meanest teachers in the school. If they didn't personally experience one of her lazy eye pointing while looking at a different person outbursts, then they certainly heard about it from other students. The crowd absolutely loved that she was having a tongue wagged in her face. After a few moments, and to everyone's shock, Mrs. Cook seemed to start enjoying it. She was smiling and even started to stick her tongue out. The crowd noise was twice, if not three times louder than the crowd participation that the Motley Crew band had gotten. OG had saved the day. There was no winner crown for the talent show, but we knew, like everyone else there, that we had won. I learned a lot from that first live performance. First, never let your brother and his friends move your drums. Second, and this is a lesson I've kept with me all throughout the years, is that you should never be so overprepared that you aren't able to change things on the fly to play to the wants and needs of a particular audience on any given night. I've played with many musicians over the years who would always want to over-rehearse. Yes, there is such a thing. Then, when it came time for the show, they weren't able to jam or change the set list because they were so set in their ways that they couldn't improvise. I believe that improvisation, in all forms of performance art, is undervalued and underappreciated. And this little performance at my 6th grade talent show taught me a lot about improv.